With rings on their fingers and bells on their toes, it's Richard, Paul, and Giles with their guests, Tim Burroughs. So fill up your glasses and join in the song. The four of us are ready and it might take quite long. So come, podcast listeners, and take a costume. Discuss a town called Mercy and the Last Chance Saloon and many more. So hello and welcome to the podcast where we take something old, that's a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, add something borrowed, that ballad, to make something who. Yes, it's Something Who podcast episode 42. (laughs) I'm Richard and we're back with another look at a pair of Doctor Who stories, this time with a Western theme. First up is another first Doctor story, it's The Gunfighters, and then we'll look at 11th Doctor outing A Town Called Mercy. And with me to mull over these homages to Western films are Big Finish writer and Missing Episodes podcaster, Paul. Hi, Paul. Good evening, Richard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have astronomy and astrophysics author and occasional TV quiz show... Uh, quiz, uh, let's get this right. Occasional <laughs> TV quiz show contestant, Giles. Hello, Giles. Hello, Richard. Episode 42 already. Yeah, yeah. Life, the universe and everything, eh? It's, uh, it's amazing how quickly that comes around. I stop now just when I'm hating it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and to finish off our quartet, we have a real treat. Coming back to something who, <laughs> by popular demand, and because Gab wasn't available. Here's you mean. <laughs> it's former Grumpcaster and the other half of the Missing Episodes podcast, Tim. Hooray. Hooray. Good evening. Can I apologise to your listeners for not being Gavin? <laughs> Where is Gavin. Is he just busy, or is there some sort of pending inquiry which which he has suspended until it's resolved, or something like that? I think he's just busy, is he? Or is he on holiday? <laughs> uh, he, he did give me uh, an excuse for not being able to turn up this time. Something about uh, his, the dog eating his homework, I think. Oh, right. And he just doesn't like the gunfighters. There is that. <gasps> he's the other one. Because we've already, as an avid listener, I'm already aware that, that Gavin doesn't like uh, fun. And doesn't like historicals. <laughs> Sorry, Gavin. <laughs> so, we'll, we'll kick off, I guess. We'll kick off by having a look at The Gunfighters. Written by Donald Cotton. Uh, we haven't looked at a Donald Cotton one before. Directed by Rex Tucker, who of course was going to direct the first one and, and finally got round to doing one in season mm. three. I mean, obviously, if there's one thing that we all knew about the gunfighters growing up, or at least in in the early 80s, sorry, that's a bit before your time, Tim, it's that it was the nadir of Doctor <laughs> Who. We, we um, you know, we were told that on, on good authority. It had very mm. low viewing figures. Actually, when you look in fact, they weren't as low as all that, and they got far worse later on in this series, uh, and then also at the start of season four. But audience appreciation was very low. Apparently it was only 30% for episode 4, whatever 30% meant. Commissioned by John Wiles and Donald Tosh, but actually realised by Lloyd and Davis. Who wants to kick us off then with 
uh, with the gunfighters. Well, should I take up from there? Because yeah. I think that's an important axis of this story. Mm-hmm. Because legend has it that, as you say, Wiles and Tosh commissioned it, and and Innes Lloyd and Jerry Davis had already decided that they didn't like historicals and they didn't like comedies, yeah. or they didn't like that style of comedy. And so when you're watching The Myth Makers, it feels a little bit like a game of two halves, doesn't it? In that it feels to me, I mean, Paul's much better on this writing style stuff, but it feels to me that you've got a truer version of Cotton's Doctor Who in the first two episodes, and then it feels more like it loses its way as the rewriting gets heavier as it goes on. Because I think I, I think I'm right in saying that Cotton wrote a witty script per the Myth Makers, and they had various nervous moments when they were making it. And I think they all sat down and watched the 57 gunfights at the OK Corral and decided it needed more action. And then they decided it was too dry. So then they started ad-libbing a bunch of comedy in it. Uh, you know, like is it Phineas? with the stutter and oh, so yes. on and Stevens mm. um, that's that's Nalib, isn't that, that yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh dear no writer writes a stutter Stevens comedy which is very gamely done so yeah it feels like a bit of a a mixed bag but i really enjoy it and mm. the reason i really enjoy it is because i can block out almost everything and just concentrate on william hartnell having a whale of a time and showing he's got timing and I don't want to say the word chops but he's got comedy chops (laughs) and you just feel him relaxed in what he's doing and enjoying it and I think he enjoys Cotton's version of the Doctor as well (laughs) and Cotton's version (laughs) of the Doctor is crotchety yes eccentric yes but he's always got no self-awareness hasn't he so in the Myth Makers (laughs) he finds himself as a victim of other people's machinations and is always trying to get out of it and it's the same here there's a case of mistaken identity which is a yeah. a western or a, it's both a western cliche and a cotton uh, i don't want to say the word trope well don't then so i'm going to say cliche <laughs> again <laughs> a, a real lack of self-awareness you know like right at the start when Stevens in his dandy cowboy outfit and yeah. the doctor says why don't you wear inconspicuous clothing like I do <laughs> and Hartnell's just really enjoying himself yeah. and that's a pleasure to see because it's at this stage in his Doctor Who career and indeed his acting career where he's struggling so to see him just really getting to grips with some light hearted comedy and showing off some great comedy timing that is the main thing for me Sorry, I've covered a load of stuff there, or skimmed you, you the said surface e- of. You said everything I would have wanted to say, so that's excellent. I'll, I'll just go and have a bath. <laughs> so, a, a tone called Mercy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did some research. I, I always rely on at least one of you having read the book. That's one thing I ran out of time to do this time, um, read up on any production issues. So this, this business of rewrites, interestingly you pinpointed the second half of the story. I mean, is that just your observation? Because I yeah. spotted that as well. Um, yes, it is. And what yeah. I was going to say was, uh, I was going to spend most of my time comparing it to the Mythmakers because they are the yin and yang of Doctor Who historical black comedies, aren't they? They're the, they're the two supreme and in some sense the only examples we've got. But it, Mythmakers feels to me like it keeps the comedy level up 
pretty consistently into episode four and then does the switcheroo. Yeah. And I always remember thinking that the Gunfighters does the same and that that's Cotton's thing. And when I was trying to pitch my own version of a Cotton historical for Big Finish, that's what I was, that was going to be my secret, secret source. You know, it's episode four where people won't be expecting this. It suddenly goes dark. Mm. They didn't go for it. But this time, I, as you say, it starts to, the comedy starts to fade out in episode three. And it's, it's never been an exact match, has it? Because although, in a sense, they're two historical events where we know there's going to be a massacre in the last five minutes, and that's what it's building towards, they don't handle that in the same way, do they? No. So it's interesting to think that it could have been a result of rewriting, because I think Donald probably would have stuck to the same structure mm. more closely, because... Yeah, from my point of view, you perfected it in the Myth Makers, and I, I think it's too early to um, try to start playing it straight in part three. So, good call. Yeah, it does feel that perhaps they might have lost their nerve and just started to go for a, for a sort of straight western halfway through or something. The other thing I was going to say about comparing it with Myth Makers, I suppose the other difference is that it's got the pastiche western going on there. Yeah. So it's it's not just a historical; it's also pastiching a a literary, a fictional genre. Yeah. Whereas Mythmakers cuts out the middleman. I think well, that's what makes it so extraordinary and why it, was, it would always uh, just edge gunfighters out for me. It's both taking history, brackets, myth, close brackets, and it's doing history but like a, in the style of a sitcom or something. It's not pastiching other versions of Greek history mm. we've seen. It's not, it's not doing it in Shakespearean style, for example. There's, very, there's no attempt to get comedy out of using Shakespearean language. It just <laughs> modernises the language for the most part. Whereas here we do have those the three levels going on: the real history somewhere in the background, but more prominently the Western cliches, brackets, tropes. Mm-hmm. I guess because Westerns have obviously been much more in in terms of cinematic history, Westerns are a much more influential di- genre than sword and sandal. At this point, I don't suppose anyone's ever really tried to do a Western without. Sorry, to tell tell an historical story set in that era, that place and time, without Mm. also pastiching the Western tropes, and without getting ahead of myself, by the time we get to a town called Mercy, that's no longer the case. Mm. But um, I'll just leave that one dangling. Mm. I think to Richard, uh, to your point, where you say, well, they they sort of gave up halfway on the witty stuff and started thinking we'd better do a Western, that's actually what happened, I think. And there's a, I was reading some Pixley about it in preparation, and he said, at, he said at one point, sort of Davis handed it over nervously and said, this isn't very good, or this isn't working. And that's when they, they, and then they just sort of made light on it. And he also commented that they were laughing themselves at how bad their accents were. So they just sort of went with it. So it just becomes this mishmash in the second half. And Cotton's vision is, um, is trampled out. The other thing I didn't have time to do fully was read the book, but I did read enough of it this afternoon ah. to, to spot that there are a lot more jokes in it. Right. And um, mm. I thought, the, the, the thought briefly flickered through, through the mind that it might have been, some of them might have been jokes in the original script. I think that's unlikely. I, I very much doubt that Cotton had an original script to look, you know, with, with jokes with um, Jerry Davis's red pen through them that he could refer to and put back in that had been burning to address the balance for 20 years I, I think he probably just made saw the opportunity for new jokes as he was writing the books it's just what you do mm. you look at your dialogue and you think well that could be better mm. that could, could gag this up a bit but anyway yeah I, if um, if anyone is at all disappointed 
in the gag rate of the finished version. Just, <laughs> just switch to the book. It's it's terrific. In in the book, he has Hartnell in the gunfight, doesn't he? Sort of comedically, clumsily <laughs> discharging the shotgun <laughs> and taking out one or two of them, I think. Which is set up right from the beginning of the book as well. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. yes, he does. It's interesting. He does take the opportunity to fiddle with the plot a bit. Mm. I mean, you know, not mm. none of the big structural points, but. Um, so that's Chekhov's shotgun, then, is it? <laughs> <laughs> isn't um, the book is written as is Doc Holliday's like deathbed confession, yeah. isn't it? Yes, yeah. yeah. Told to yet another voice, which um, a character is not in it, but that's just, I suppose, oh, how right, you okay. that, maybe that's a pastiche in the nineteenth-century novel way of doing things. Mm. Yeah, after the more layers, the better. It's yeah. not, it doesn't quite reach Frankenstein proportions, but. And I don't want to labour the point about the Cotton Davis Tucker split on this, but I think there's a fingerprint in the music as well, and indeed in the book, Cotton's verses are the ones which are the scene-setting verses. And Mm -hmm. Rex Tucker decided, presumably having viewed Gunfight at the OK Corral, to take the narrative trick of whoever's singing in that film to describe what is happening on screen. But Mm. Cotton's verses are the scene-setting ones. So the with rings on their fingers and bells on their toes and ends up talking about prostitutes and so on. Mm. And that's very Donald <laughs> Cotton and witty and, you know, layered. Whereas the really boring, repetitive ones about Charlie the Barman yeah. and all that sort of stuff is Rex Tucker. I started really disliking Rex Tucker, <laughs> both watching this and reading about this. Interesting. Yeah. I think there's a definite split. It's just a shame we can't see what Cotton's original mm. vision is. It's funny, by all accounts, the uh, regular cast didn't get on with Tucker either they felt like they were being left floundering supposedly at, at least according to the production notes mm. Tucker was somewhat out of his depth and elected to concentrate on the guest actors some of whom he'd cast in previous productions mm-hmm. and left left the regulars feeling a bit out of their depth and yet Tucker then had his name taken off the um he's not uncredited for episode 4 mm. he wanted his name taken off the credits strange that isn't it Supposedly due to disagreements over the editing of the actual gunfight film material, at least according, again according oh, to the production notes. I'd have disagreed as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's strange to think of Rex Tucker, who's, who's a, this giant figure in, you know, he's one of the, the founding inverted commas fathers of the show, yeah. isn't he? Mm. And, and to, to, it's quite sad when you see him come in that he's had such a, an unhappy experience both mm. in terms of his output and literally being un- so unhappy he takes his name off it. But he does mm. have time to let, to give his daughter a, a, a walk-on part, apparently. What? Oh, yes, it's, yeah. Yeah, so so apparently his, his, his daughter is Jane from Rod, Jane and Freddy, and she turns... Oh, that was my <laughs> fact! Brilliant! <laughs> and, she's, and she's somewhere in the... Yeah, she's somewhere in the lynch mob, isn't she? Or the... Just, be, just next to Bungle. <laughs> it's easy to spot once you, you see, know. Jane, Jane had a, a genius for comedy. I remember a, an episode of Rainbow where she's walking around the set, the house, for the entire ten minutes of the episode, and she can't find her sunglasses. And in fact, the whole time they are perched atop of her head. Right. So it's so she didn't get the comedy gene from Rex. <laughs> did she? Clearly not. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to ask you what precisely it was you didn't like about 
Rex's direction, but I think you've just given me a clue. Because I thought it was technically quite proficient, but that's because we've been hmm. thinking quite a lot about uh, Richard Martin recently. So any anything <laughs> <doesn't look laughs> an improvement. But are you saying you don't think he was sympathetic to the tone of this piece? I don't get like the, best. the fact that they all sat down and watched the 50, 1956 film and threw out Cotton's version and put their own on it and then sort of gave up on it took their names off it right and made it into a bit of a just a free for all really without knowing anything other problems be the fracas behind the fracas behind the scenes I, I would have assumed he did a quite good job bringing it to screen just from the textual evidence that's interesting maybe it could have been even better i think mm. the, i think from a technical direction point of view i think it is good and it's it's kind of i mean because this comes straight after the arc doesn't it which is another one where you actually see them okay they're they're doing some surprisingly ambitious shots it's, it's here or maker, stuff that it? you wouldn't yeah are, are they not wearing they bought a, wearing oh sorry no it is, it is the toy maker of course you're right yeah they just bought a ladder that they can stand the, one of the cameras on that's all they've mm. done <laughs> are there any other, i can't think of any other stories that have lots of shots from up a tower Mm. Yeah, you know, straight down looking on the action. I don't know if that's forced by the, 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 the smallness of the sets or it doesn't seem like a, a particularly Western thing to do. No. Well, they, got an, they got an extra it's camera in for episode one. They had six cameras, right. including the, apparently, you know, which was exceptional. And they and they obviously, they were... I'd have had seven. They were, <laughs> <laughs> they were pushed for space and stuff because of some of the things that they... Apparently, the, the no-shooting sign in the in the bar is actually that's concealing a window that they could lift up to put a camera behind it and shoot into the set they were trying to squeeze so much onto onto the studio floor is this the sort of thing tucker's famous for i think tucker was sort of caretaker producer until they found verity lambert right Mm. and i think he was sort of caretaker director until they found waris hussein right so he was he was edging both aspects of the production forwards until they got the permanent he was a placeholder until they Mm. got the permanent people Mm. selected and he made various choices in storytelling as well oh things like i i imagine he he changed the names of the cast from whatever barbara was going to be called to lola cliff and lola that sort of thing i think (laughs) Mm. he was at that sort of of level with it Mm. but always always a placeholder Oh no, I tell mm. a lie. Was he going to direct <laughs> alternately with Waris Hussain? Anyway, he was definitely a directorial okay. sort of, of influence. Mm. He, he, was, he was an unsafe pair of hands. I do actually <laughs> think that that overhead shot is slightly, is probably, is only partially successful. It's a bit showy and I liked it the first time. But then mm. there are loads of other sh- scenes where he's doing it for no reason. It's not actually adding to the drama. It just makes you think, what? Is, so, is somebody stood at the top of the stairs? Are we supposed to be identifying with somebody's spine mm. on the middle? Ju- he's just doing it because he's got a camera stuck up there mm. and he, yeah. he wants to get his money's worth. So, But there are plenty of other places where I thought... And it works for the Doc Holliday shot in the in the bar, especially, doesn't it? Mm. But then that's the whole perspective. And it was, it was a rare case, to my mind, of, I, I suddenly thought, oh, hang on, they've lost, they've lost the focus on this shot. And I was thinking, no, there is actual depth of field in this shot, which is mm. a um, very rare thing for... <laughs> for 1960s Doctor Who, to my mind, well, I'm least, not going to try and talk about depth studio of field stuff. But in 1960s Doctor Who studios, mm. because I did that for an aborted pilot for a different podcast. Oh, talking okay. About, talking about the chase, 
and uh, I, <laughs> I shared up my limit, the limitation, my understanding of lenses and focal lengths. Right. Yeah. Don't, but, don't uh, worry. My Can we talk about anamorphic widescreen? <laughs> 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 Having covered our sort of thing glory in a previous incarnation. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, watched um, Gunfight at the OK Corral, the movie, you know, to familiarise myself with it, sort of re-familiarise myself. And yeah, obviously Tim is quite familiar with it anyway, by the sounds of it. I don't think it can be as simple as them having had a panic and then and then decided what do we do? Let's rip this let's rip the movie version off. Because there's and so much structurally that is there and that is mm. ro- you know, that is wrong about the fifty seven, the movie mm. and is inherit and the wrongness is inherited in this. Yeah. And there are also things like the ripping off of the ballad and the first shot is effectively the same, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, is it is ex- exactly the same. The entire setup, it's it's actually slightly different characters because the movie takes a takes a more possibly more historically accurate way around it, and the TV series basically makes the Clantons the folk, the Clanton gang the the focus mm. from the start. Whereas whereas in the movie there are various various others. It's Ed Bailey, I think, who is the one that's looking for Doc. To avenge a yeah. killing, uh, you know, to right. avenge a shooting at the start, I think, and there's stuff like the the inclusion of Johnny Ringo, who historically was never anywhere near the OK Corral, and yet is written into both of these both of these treatments. I think basically but, because he was a rival of Doc, you know, he was Doc Holliday's bitter rival. I don't think is Bat Masterson in the in the movie. I don't think he is. Is he? I think he briefly turns. Is up. he? Yeah, he was a major think, part in Cotton's version, and he was yeah. nowhere near mm. Tombstone at the time of the fight. Mm. Yeah, um, so it's it's quite interesting. And Pixley also pointed out that Cotton actually paid someone to research the history, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then threw that out, yeah. and, and then threw it out down okay. the line right. of a much simplified. Well, I was going to say, who was it? Peter Haining. Um. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice one. Yeah, so he ends up doing a simplified version of the film, it looks like, but the, mm. the structure is very much the same, isn't it? With Doc Holliday yeah. hiding, and mm. and then it, it's... Uh, maybe, maybe he just found that a nice excuse to get the Doctor involved, in that mm. Holliday's in hiding, and therefore he can do the, the mistaken identity thing. I don't know. Mm. Mm. But when they sat and watched the film for vibes, mm. I definitely get the sense that they they stripped a different kind of use of the song mm. and and more action, which ends up in that mess of a fight at the end. Because in the film, mm. it, it's a long fight, isn't it? It's a long old fight. Yeah. Mm. There's a wagon that catches on fire and so on, and they try yes, to copy yeah. that in the TV show. Mm. But the actual gunfight was thirty shots in thirty seconds or something, wasn't it? It was. They yeah. Were, they mm. were they were meters apart. Yes. They were lined up, and it was hell for leather, and it was chaos, and no mm. one could see a thing, and there was you know smoke everywhere, and no one knows yeah. what happens. All of one side say they fired first, and all of the mm. other side say they fired first. Yes. The cast is the cast of characters at the actual gunfight was different. Wyatt Earp was second to Virgil Virgil was yeah and the whole modern myth of Wyatt Earp has grown out of a a largely fictional Mm. biography that was written after he died I mean and it didn't didn't even happen at the OK Corral but uh, gunfight at CS Flies photographic studio (laughs) presumably wouldn't have been so catchy (laughs) so 
yeah, Cotton has made a conscious decision to discard the actual history yeah. because he mm. researched it in favor of doing a, shall we say, homage to the film mm. or a pastiche of the film, which was then further diluted by the evil Rex Tucker and his <laughs> minions. <laughs> Can I assume that it wasn't Cotton's idea to write about the gunfight at the O.K. Corral in the first place then? Was, it, was he asked to write this? I think it was, was Wiles and Tosh. I think the production notes imply it was Wiles and Tosh who came up with the idea of, well, let's do yeah. a Western. Mm. Well, explain why he, his heart doesn't seem to be quite as much in it as it was <coughs> with the Mythmakers. Mm. And why he would research one way of doing it and then think, right, that's not going to work. I mean, it's not. You feel like with the Mythmakers, he knew how he was going to approach it from the beginning, even though I think last time I discussed it, we, just, we discovered that it wasn't actually his idea either, was it? It's not going to be the last time in Doctor Who, though, is it, that the history is somewhat inaccurate and you know, they go for something very broad. <laughs> mm. And I think, to, I mean, to some extent, it's, it's kind of irrelevant that the history is all wrong. And, and I guess we, we see more of this in A Town Called Mercy. It, it, the mm. point of the last couple of episodes seems to be about this kind of dilemma that they've got. You know, Masterson wants to, to go with the law, but in the end, mm. retribution seems to win the day. Hmm. Is is Doctor Who allowed to do that? Is Doctor Who allowed to to spoof and parody? Because everyone here present today probably has a different take <laughs> to the chap I've replaced, who, when he's listening to this, he will be gurning and foam will be coming from his nostrils and mouth, <laughs> steam from his ears. And I don't care. You've I think it's that wonderful. You've conjured me out of my time, Eddie. <laughs> Good Lord. Can you... Can you play in a, a William Hartnell <laughs> pling plong pling noise? So, I so, you're, so this is my replacement. My visage can appear. Yeah. A dandiana clown. <laughs> Tell me something. What is The Gunfighters? It is not a historical story. No. Stop calling it that. It if they travelled back in time, <laughs> if the TARDIS landed in World War Two. And they, they were in Germany, and there was a bloke called Brian Hitler, and his right-hand <laughs> man was Winston Churchill. And nobody commented on it. Yeah. <laughs> they were just like, oh, we're in the Second World War, this is fun. <laughs> why is this, why, do, why are they not in the OK Corral having the same reaction as, as when they see bloody zeppelins in the sky yeah. in alternate Earth in the Cyberman thing in the new series? Well, Why are they not going? Oh, well, these these he's not supposed to be here. This isn't how history's meant to be. Stevens from the future and Dodo's an idiot because they've only seen the movie. They don't know the yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. So you've got Stephen and Dodo. You know, Stephen's from the far future, and Dodo as <laughs> probably hasn't watched very much westerns. So, so he hasn't finished school, and, and the Doctor's a bit a bit kind of um, out of it by this stage. So maybe they just haven't noticed. But I mean, <laughs> so, is, isn't so, it just as likely though that, that you know that basically the Celestial Toy Maker is sending them through another oh another game or something? I mean, or, or or at least that is the mm, only explanation. Or, or, or at least it's like the Master of the Land of Fiction. <laughs> yes, they're not they're not they're not really ended up in Tombstone. They've ended up somewhere else. You can say that again. I mean, the weird thing is, some of the decisions are so arbitrary, because you've got, I mean, you've got people like Bat Masterson, as you said, wasn't, he wasn't in Tombstone, he was somewhere else at the time. He was vaguely connected to these people, but uh, he wasn't there. But 
you've got Wyatt Earp's been made town marshal in the Doctor Who version. When it was his brother Virgil, he he was the actual town marshal. So yeah. they've just arbitrarily swapped them. And I appreciate this is because it you know this this uh, Wyatt Earp biography from the thirties. Yeah, and just Burt Lancaster in the movie. Yeah. So, yeah, but if you know anything about these events, it is the most surreal experience watching this thing that appears to be oh the TARDIS has gone back in history oh but they're different oh there was no Reuben Clanton oh there was no Seth Harper Pa Clanton's supposed to be dead there is no Phineas Clanton hang on Ike Clanton wasn't killed in the it's so weird it's so weird it's like watching a <laughs> Titanic movie and the Titanic doesn't sink at the end and you're just thinking what why is this called Titanic what is going on here yeah this is insane and the weird thing is it's like it's just like you were saying about the myth makers, but I'm I'm reliably informed that if you've got a doctorate in history, some of the myth makers is funny because it's not how it was meant to be. So apparently, if you watch the myth makers and you're you're up to your eyeballs in the reality of it, quote unquote reality, you go, oh, that character's supposed to be a a, a, a tremendous uh, personality and a, and a courageous bloke, but in this, he's a simpering idiot. So that's allegedly hilarious. But if you're a normal person, you're just watching it thinking, who's this simpering idiot? And then you have to have Tim and Toby Haydock explain to you later why it's funny. But you're like watching the gunfighters, having an out-of-body experience, thinking, is this some just astonishing parody of the genre or just the Western subverting... The a modern myth. Yeah. Hmm. I, I, well, yes, but it's not like a myth where you have gods... And Trojan horses and you just make stuff up and that becomes a myth. It's not a fictional story to begin with that has become embellished. It's a series oh. of people who were murdered and <laughs> and <laughs> now their deaths are apparently just fair game. Or just murder people who didn't die at the time. <laughs> just bring Johnny Ringo in and have him die in a different place, in a different part of the country. It's mental. Or bring Sid James in as the Rumpo kid. <laughs> why Why? It's mental. We're losing him. Has somebody fiddled with the controls? We're losing Gav. We're... <laughs> He's going wish. all weird. You wish. You wish. And that, the weird thing is, the whole point of the gunfight, both the catalyst and both the, both the political background and the reason the actual fight took place are both perfectly clear and sensible and didn't need changing, and yet they are changed. Because it was, it was basically the, the city folk versus the country folk, and the Clantons were the country folk. And the the Earps didn't like them, and they didn't like each other. But it's so weird that the 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 story is re centralised around Doc Holliday, and the the Clanton's whole vendetta is against Doc Holliday, who you know he was a background character, and he was a temporary policeman in reality. Whereas in the Doctor Who, that he's uh, one of the Earps is like, oh, I'm not going to fight with him. He's an outlaw. You made him a bloody policeman in real life, you idiot. Anyway. <laughs> But again, so, he was Kirk Dun he's Kirk Douglas in the movie. That's well, why this is the other thing. That's why he's your main. Yeah, well, that's why this, those are your two go-to guys. This is why it's interesting watching from the ether as I was eavesdropping uh, on your universe from my time, Eddie. It was fascinating to discover that, like with the MythMakers, apparently this is not as terrible if you've watched seventeen other things that this references. <laughs> so, again, if you've done your homework this isn't as bad as you think it is that is the take home that i have learned from the gunfighters so it's it's good if you've watched too much other television and film and it's bad if you've read too much history 
So I think we know where Doctor Who's aimed, what that, what its audience mm. is. My my time eddy's destabilizing. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I'm <laughs> fading away. I'm fading. So I think oh, I think going back to the question Bye. is is Doctor Who allowed to pastiche genres and not be slavishly loyal to history? I think Gav's a no. <laughs> that's the that's the problem with Gavin a podcast. He just doesn't really make it clear what he thinks. It's always so equivocal. I I like to think that that Cotton's vision was poking fun at an entire generation of people that are grown yeah. up watching Western films yeah. every Saturday at the cinema yeah. and having a, a a laugh at them. Is Doctor Who allowed to do it though? Gav says no. I mean, I mean, you're, you're, I mean, you're right, Tim. I mean, it, you can't really overstate how much the Western was a thing in in this era. I mean, I, I mean, of course, this is mm. this is before I was born, but but very shortly afterwards, my dad's eighteen eighty one. Before you were born, <laughs> you mean nineteen sixty six was before I was born. But very shortly afterwards, I'm you know I'm there with my dad and my granddad every Saturday afternoon watching. I don't know the mm. high chaparral or any any number of other western Bonanza. series, mm. uh, and and so yeah, I mean it, it, it it's absolutely something that that people who watched Doctor Who in 1966 would be really very familiar with in a way that mm. that when we watch it now, it's 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 dropped out of the scene. Well, it's it's interesting because it's because it's also when this was made. I mean, OK Corral is very much of the you know given that it's got a sonorous song to it and everything like that and it's certainly it's of that kind of classic western tradition yeah and then it's kind of but but by the time this is made this is around the time that you get you start getting the real revisionist ones yeah coming in in the in the 60s and i guess associated with like counterculture in vietnam and everything like that that these things so people start looking at it looking at it through a different lens at that point any, anyway so maybe it's just you know Again, it's this kind of critical mass of these horse opera type, very classic westerns has built up, and people start questioning it. And in some ways, maybe this is questioning it in a different way from Sam Peckinpah or Sergio Leone, for instance. Mm. Yeah, for two episodes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then they decide they better go down. Yeah. Mm. Can I talk a little bit more about it as Doctor Who rather mm. than as history or pastiche or anything? I'm going to call back something from about three hours ago. But <laughs> Tim pointed out that the Cotton Doctor, when I, which I heartily agree with. One thing that's obvious about the Cotton Doctor, he's quite passive, isn't he? As well as being a bit of an mm. idiot savant, he also bump, seems to bumble through these events, barely aware of what's going on. Mm. But l- luckily they pulled back from having him you know, accidentally bump into the villains and knock them into, push them over a cliff or whatever. But um, it, he... He slightly fixes that in the novel. Again, the thing you mentioned, that bringing him into the climax in an active way. Do you think there's any way in which Cotton recognised coming to, you know, coming back to the script afresh that he was a bit too passive, his hero? If it didn't bother him in 1966, why would it have bothered him in 1986? There's a question for you. You well, don't know. We okay. don't. We don't know whether whether <laughs> in Cotton's original version that Hartnell yeah. was was in the fight. That's true. Uh, I don't know. But it's a very tricky. As subjects go, and yes, it's yes, it's one of the most famous incidents of the Old West. So from that point of view, you could understand zeroing in on it. But you know, given that the whole thing is is a focused on bloodletting, and you can't, you know, the myth makers, okay, 
we know it ends bloodily, but there's there's a lot more local colour along the way, as it were. Whereas this is really, you know, the the actual you know the historical background, as we say, is just a is a petty feud that ends ends in a lot of bloodletting. It's an odd, it's a very difficult story to put to land the land the TARDIS crew into. It seems. Yeah. I'm not sure that if I was if I was saying okay, let's do a they're still Western. I mean, okay, you're taking some gunplay and stuff like that for granted, but you'd think is that the you know is this actually the story that you'd want to do? And yeah. then then does that dictate that the Doctor has to have a passive role? Because yeah. what else you know? And the the idea of the Doctor kind of pratting around with a shotgun in the in the actual in the midst of an actual gunfight, it probably works in the novelization when it's filtered through two three layers of narration, but. But actually seen representationally on screen, you know, if that if that was actually shown in a way that you know it was undeniable, you know, that you had to then represent that that was that was the Doctor doing that, you know, having some active role in gunning people down, then would that be yeah, would that be going too far? So perhaps you had to have the have this thing it's- of him, and it's a, it's an interesting conceit anyway that you just drop the Doctor into the middle, you know, and the Doctor's arrival starts to muck things up i don't think it can miraculously raise park lantern from the grave and explain why there are two other herbs or lanterns or whichever whichever ones we're missing doesn't feel like this is a fixed point in time does it (laughs) (laughs) have we been have we been here before i mean Mm. as as we've driven into the ground there are so many difficult decisions you have to make when you're writing a historical who in Mm. any era then or now can they change things or can't they if they can, do you go down the route of getting a gag out of Doctor Who creating history? Or mm. do you get a gag out of him trying to avoid changing anything? Or do you just or do you shirk away from either of those extremes and just have him watching from the sidelines, which is usually quite unsatisfactory, mm. but you can get away with it in a comedy? I think here that this is probably, compared to, say, the Mythmakers of the Romans, probably the story in which the Doctor is most passive. Because there are no gags about creating wooden horses, or mm. there's no starting the Great Fire of London, or setting off Vesuvius. There's not even any great tension as to whether or not they'll they'll negatively affect recorded mm. history. They're mm. just there and they're watching. Well, Dodo, however, is directly responsible for, for Johnny <laughs> Ringo's death. Mm. Yes, yeah. I thought Dodo was quite good here. I, I was going to mm. say that I think it's probably without having seen too often. It's probably her best story as a character yeah. and probably as a performance, which mm. I guess she's doing the best. You know, it's still not great, but... Um, she does stick to her own accent, unlike Peter Purvis. I mean, Peter Purvis is very game. She's perky, and, yeah, she's watching what Purvis is doing, and they're both trying to um, grab the comedy, yes. wring every bit of potential can out of the yeah. comedy. I don't mm. imagine she would have thought of doing that if she hadn't been working with Bill and, and Purvis. Mm. She gets smacked on the bottom an awful lot. Yes, there is that. Uh, I, I, I thought with Peter, Peter I mean the legend of Peter right. Purvis I hadn't spotted that, cancel it, I'm off <laughs> <laughs> So the legend of this story is that Peter Purvis doesn't doesn't like it but I mean, mm. but he, you know, it seems like you know, not unlike the Morton Dill character in, in The Chase he's, he's, <laughs> he's actually going for it quite well you know, he's, he's he, uh, he, he does some, some nice double takes he sort of deliberately stumbles over stuff in places, he's you know, he's given it an awful lot to say that in the end, mm. maybe maybe he didn't enjoy it all that much. Does he still say that? It's interesting. 
No, um, it's a very fine line because he manages to give a funny performance while not breaking the number one rule of Stephen as a character, which is that he's not funny <laughs> yeah. and has mm. and has no sense of humour. But here he's funny because of that. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Mm. So good. And at the at the encouragement of the evil Rex Tucker to try and rescue mm. the production, just go for it, guys. And uh, to a young game actor like Stephen, he he can do all the tricks, can't he? He gets his singing out. He he switches accents at will. Yeah. You know he's got all of his comedy trips and all of that. Yeah, you say there's one too many. <laughs> I think he might be just showing off a little bit. Hartnell, though, I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to think that Hartnell, there's one bit with Hartnell which I'd never really noticed before. Charlie the barman is over the bar yeah. dead <laughs> for about two episodes. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's a lovely bit that I hadn't really picked up on before where Hartnell goes to lean yes. on him yeah. and then does a double take. Yeah, yeah. And that was just, <laughs> it was just nice. Mm. Now I think he's also yeah, I miss that. at the I top of his game, that. and it's easy to miss mm. because it's such an understated performance. Mm. But he doesn't bollocks anything up in the way he does in the Romans. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, he's not. He's not chuckly. But that's the difference, isn't it? That that's Cotton's doctor, where he's yeah. he's, he's yeah. the not the victim but the bystander. Mm. Whereas in the Romans, he's being forced to be the the funny man rather than the mm. straight man, mm. and that's where the the Romans falls down. He can only be chuckly if he understands what's going on because it's when mm. he's explaining things and Absolutely. it's when he's being forced to be the doctor in that, yeah. and especially the early 60s children's TV doctor and he has to explain things and he d- he's tweaking his companion's cheeks and, and giggling. But um, Yeah, I like, I like that version too. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh yeah, of course. Mm. No, it stands out almost. It stands out almost as much as the Christopher H. Bid made Fifth Doctor. Really, he's so different yeah. in those yes. stories by that one writer. It's almost like I can't think of many other examples of a single writer who writes a Doctor so. Yeah, there's a, there's a nice moment with when uh, Hartnell is is with uh, Jackie Lane, and uh, you know, in, in, they're both drinking milk in the bar. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's mm. quite. It's, it's sort of reminiscent, I suppose, of Doctor and Vicky, maybe in the Crusade or something like that, or or, or in the Romans, mm. where they're. It's one of a couple of contradictions that sneak in, isn't it? I never touch alcohol. Well, apart from in the massacre in the Daleks' master plan, <laughs> in uh, the time meddler, uh, and so on. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then there's the. I, am, I assume it's a Donald Cotton touch where Stephen's playing around with the gun at the start, and he says, uh, "Be careful with that. That that's from my finest collection, or oh, something yes. like that, doesn't he?" And so this guy's got this maniac has no aspirin in the TARDIS, but a collection of guns, <laughs> yeah. and then spends the rest of the hundred minutes pretending that he hates guns. He's got a bloody <laughs> collection of them. Yeah. So th- there's some slapdash story editing going on there. <laughs> um, I would blame Rex Tucker, but I can't. I've blamed him for enough. So I think that's Jerry Davis's fault. Blame Jerry Davis. Yeah. You can say that one. We've already magnanimously not talked about one problematic aspect of this production. All very carefully st- strayed away from it as if... Is it too lowbrow to discuss the accents on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's too lowbrow for this podcast. <laughs> I should have made more precise notes. Again, one of the things I always remember about the story is that the actors with the best 
accents get killed off earlier on, <laughs> leaving them the worst to st- stagger on for all four episodes. Yeah. But it's, ne- it's not quite as simple as that. But there's an, there's an element of it, isn't there? Hmm. So what I find baffling about the at, well, all right, the general standard I think is okay, but the few bad ones are so bad that they they're so and they're so distracting. <laughs> they're not bad in the way that American accents can be. You know, a foreign accent is normally bad. They're just bizarre. It's like they're being delivered by people who've never heard an American accent. It's not It's not the sort of accent you would expect from somebody who knows what an American accent is but can't quite get there. It's really like it's being described to them by, by a, some other medium. It's astonishing. Yeah. A series of pictograms. Yeah. Um. yeah. <laughs> I, Ike is, is clearly the worst. And he's got, like Paul says, the most lines in it. Bounces from Australian to Cockney to I just don't know. It's just this. I don't. I don't get it because all these have grown up watching American <laughs> cinema. What excuse yeah. have they got? They they mm. were as, as immersed in American culture as we are. But at least Probably at least so. William Herndl is consistently awful. <laughs> you know what you're getting with him after a while, and mm. you can sort of get by because it's consistent. But the others dip in and out. I thought Lawrence Payne was awful. So Johnny Ringo. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Which is a is shame a because he's very charismatic and handsome yeah. in the role, isn't he? And menacing. Mm. And he's all over the place. Is there supposed to be anything going on in his accent? Like a shade of, I don't know, something Latin or Mexican? Is there, I just wonder I because of the, the surname, <laughs> if, if perhaps he was point. trying, <laughs> trying yeah. to put a bit but, of... I mean, the excitement about, about this is, is I mean, it's, it's, this is probably somebody else, somebody else's uh, hidden fact, but he, you, they wanted to ca- cast Patrick Troughton can you in that role? Apparently, can you imagine what his accent would have been? Well, <laughs> Philip Maddock was somewhere in the vicinity, wasn't he? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and the 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 biggest ball drop is in that what should be a lovely film sequence at the end, the gunfight, the crowning glory of the serial, and I think it's Billy. I can't remember the actor's name. Hmm. But he interrupts. Well, it kind of needs an interruption because I'm not a fan of that film sequence at the end at all. But he suddenly screams out because his accent is all over the place. But yeah. he suddenly screams out, forgive my impression, but something like, I'm going to go get Doc Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, oh, it's just. It's just a shame, isn't it? Mm. It's just a shame. It, but. I knew it was coming, so it didn't detract <laughs> from my and overall enjoyment of yeah. it, which I said at the mm. top. I do enjoy it, I, but um, it's mm. it's one of the main reasons I would never show this to someone. Else. In, in, in this in, <laughs> in, in this fantasy place that purports to be the OK Corral and, and Tombstone, Arizona, it, it, it's also that that's how they speak there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. Is it talking of just reflecting on better performances? And I've, I've got a lot of time for it, and I think I think John Alderson's quite good as as Erp. Is quite although apparently on that one we we um, we missed having uh, Donald Sutherland was considered for the for the part, but Alderson had apparently had actual actual Western experience. He'd been in you know he'd spent part of his career in America. Doing actual westerns, I think he's he's fun. He is, yeah. Anthony Jacobs is is great. Yeah, he's a bit old, isn't um, he, for the part? Yes, yeah. Uh, it's funny they, they always they they always I'm, 
Doc Holliday died at 36, and the right. thing I was going to say about the, death, <laughs> the, the thing I was going to say about the deathbed was that um, I, by accident, have ended up having having a drink in the very hotel where Doc Holliday died. Oh, in uh, yes, in in uh, Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Mm. Ah, I was on holiday a few years ago and driving between Denver and Salt Lake City, and stopped off in this town, and um, and we just stopped off for a coffee and a drink, and. Uh, Found ourselves, yeah, and there was a sign saying Doc Holliday died upstairs, yeah. Right. But not not until he did, not until he dictated the gunfire. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> At least, he's, but he's, he's not as old as you think, though. Uh, Anthony Jacobs only only apparently forty six when he made this. God. So he, he certainly looks older than that. Yes, yeah. Film, I would say that's really old, guys. He's just a young old. fella. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And of course, Kirk Douglas looks fairly similar in um, in in the movie, yeah, version as well, which is is interesting because that in the in the movie version, he's you can see where they kind of maybe that's where he picked it up from that that the start the opening scenes with Kirk Douglas as Doc Holliday, he is quite genial and dapper and has that same hmm. same thing, and then then he gets he gets a lot worse and harsher as. As the movie progresses, whereas but you can see where they they took the tone. Tuberculosis is completely omitted in the Gunfighters, mm-hmm. is it? Pretty sure, yes, yeah. No mention of it. That's a strange omission. You'd think they'd put that in as a little historical <laughs> nugget. Hmm. I, I would have thought they would. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> it just detracts from Doc Holliday's. You say that's the one historical <laughs> fact. Oh, he's 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 back. The time, the time lords have boosted the power. <laughs> I don't. I, that that no, is I'm the one historical that. omission that, that, that broke. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it would have been a nice bit of character flavour. <laughs> that, that's it. Yes. Yeah. Who's that guy? Oh, he's Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> The, the edge, isn't it? From does, does, does William Hartnell just shout the words "dilly dally" as he appears on the screen? I've never understood that. It just sh- sounds like he appears on the monitor in the Three Doctors, and he's just shouting "hello, dilly dally." I have no idea what's going on there. I thought about doing that myself, but I didn't know if that's what was really going on, so I omitted it. Hmm. <laughs> in the Three Doctors, what? Yeah. Doesn't matter, Tim. It's- Hmm. <laughs> Going back to the gunfighters, can I just make? I've calmed down now, but yeah. can I can I make a, a small observational point? It's a shame that the history was thrown in the bin, because the actual, if you want to call it an arc story within this little narrative of Ike Clanton, is is far better and more interesting. I don't know about any of the 13 films that this uh, is homage to, but in real life, there'd been a stagecoach robbery. And Wyatt Earp was trying to find out who'd done the stagecoach robbery. And he thought Ike Clanton's friends had done it. So Mm. he was trying to get Ike Clanton to throw them under the stage. Mm. And (laughs) he was trying to bribe Ike. He was going to give them them like six grand or something, reward money, to to name the the, the friends who'd done this robbery. Uh Anyway... The word ended up getting out that, that, that Ike was, was considering selling out his friends. And Doc Holliday was talking about it. So Ike confronted Doc Holliday and said, 
uh, I believe you're going around talking about the fact that I'm a I'm a traitor. So it set up this interesting thing where, where Ike was paranoid that he was being let down by people he knew, and there wasn't this necessary simmering tension with Doc. The interesting thing then was that the, in the 24, 48 hours up to the gunfight, Ike was getting wound up. There was a big poker game between the, the Earps and the Clantons and the the real lawman who's not included in the gunfight mm. at all. It was a critical player in all of this. And they were all having a poker game. They all drank all night, played poker and got drunk. And Ike was getting increasingly wound up. And Ike was then going around town spoiling for a fight with the Earps and saying, I, I'm going to kill an Earp, find me an Earp to kill, or worse to that effect. And he was just trying to get into this big thing. And then when the gunfight finally kicked off, Ike panicked and said to White Earp, I haven't got a gun, don't shoot me, and he legged it. <laughs> and I think that's a beautiful series of character developments that this guy was paranoid developed into bravado and then bottled it at the last minute and he let his friends and relatives be gunned down and and i think that's more interesting i think i think ike being a coward and legging it after being the instigator of the famous gunfight at the ok corral is more interesting and if i was writing this i would go with that whether think it, it would was... have appealed to Cotton, wouldn't you? Mm. And instead, he's just... He likes uh, deconstructing the ideas of heroes and villains. Mm. Yeah. So that's my little thought on Ike Clanton. Mm. I think that I think truth mm. is far more interesting than than this uh, just everyone dies randomly mm. version that we get. Mm. And Warren, Warren Earp didn't die any... Not in the... I mean, in, not in the gunfight, but he didn't get shot in a prison mm. cell either. He died in California some years later. Mm. He was just nothing to do with it. And didn't Ike then try to... Well, not Sue, but have have um, have the Earps. Yeah, there was a big for, thing about who who done murder. what and who was right to do it, and um, mm. I think the Earps were cleared. Mm. But yeah, it was, it was far from goodies and baddies. Even in the mm. two nineties films, they still persist with. I mean, they they have the luxury of researchers, and you know they they do go to pains to get some things right, but they still mix up the historical events in order to tell a more Hollywood story mm. with a climax at the gunfight. Yeah. I think two of the brothers were shot, well, in the, in, in, I can't remember which one, Tombstone or Wyatt Earp. In both of them, I think Morgan Earp gets killed before the gunfight, and he doesn't, he just wasn't shot at all before the gunfight. Mm. He was, well, he was wounded in the gunfight and survived it in real life. Sure. And um, then was killed afterwards? In yeah, I think so. Yeah. But... Even the, even by the nineties, where you'd think they've got time and the story the storytelling skill to to make it into a more historically accurate thing, they still persist hmm. with not doing that. So it's curious. Print the legend, eh? You don't get in this though that kind of entirely that goodies and baddies. I mean, the, the even though it's, even though it's completely historically inaccurate, hmm. the Earps are shown to be you know not entirely in the right, and the Clantons aren't completely in the wrong. And certainly, you know, and certainly Doc Holliday is an ambiguous character in this, in the sort of Fagin sense. He's he's a lovable mm. rogue rather than you know a, a nasty piece of work. But yeah, it, it's it's not quite a, a goodies versus baddies in a in a in a classic Doctor Who kind of a way. He's a lovable rogue who who kills an off-screen character Indeed, yeah. for a plate of beef. Yeah, quite. <laughs> <laughs> Doc Holliday, I think, in real life was one of the few people that had any kind of 
particular reputation. He he thought to have killed at least three people, but um, a lot of the Earps they were not well known as gunmen. I mean, mm. the Earps. That's in it. Like you were saying, it, it's not a it's not a black and white thing. But doc, the Doctor Who could have played more on that because the Earps were. I mean, yes, they were they were lawmen, but they were they were pimps and they were saloon owners. And there's there's a lot to explore in the factual side of things. Mm. And and mm. I I get that sometimes people writers want to embellish stuff because the truth isn't interesting enough, or they want to tell a particular story. But the the thing I struggle with in the Gunfighters is that the, it doesn't it doesn't sacrifice truth in favor of anything better. The truth in many respects is more interesting. And the grey areas of right and wrong is a is a really uh, fruitful topic to explore. And you could write a you could write a whole thing, and you probably tell me it's been done, where the Earps are, are quite clearly the bad guys, and the the Clantons were the friendly locals protecting their ranch, and they yeah. they were there first. They'd been there a long time, and the Earps came along and were yes, they were lawmen, but they were they were looking after their own interests and they were businessmen as well so mm. that you know they exercised their the, the the law how it suited them uh, and you could very easily spin a story where the the clantons are the goodies and the herps are the antagonists and just winding them up the whole way through because they were doing things like needlessly enforcing trivial rules to to mm. wind the clantons up there was um i think an incident where one of the clantons horses stepped foot on the pavement and that was in violation of a bylaw or something like that. So the Earps said, one of the Earps said, you know, that horse is ridden where it's not allowed to ride. So they, mm. so they needled him. And like an a hour series of microaggressions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was about an hour before the gunfight. Morgan had found Ike and pistol whipped him. So it, it wasn't like the gunfight was the fi- first time they'd converged on this location to settle their beef. It was mm. a it was a general day of antagonism following a night of drinking, poker playing, and needling each other. Hmm. They'd already had, they'd been to court. They'd, he'd been dragged to court an hour before the gunfight, hmm. and Ike was spoiling for a fight, and so was so was Wyatt Earp. And Wyatt Earp hmm. thrust thrust his gun in his face and said, "Here's your gun. We'll settle it right here." The only reason it's not the gunfight in the courtroom in Tombstone is because the the judge walked in and and they they settled it in a slightly more respectable manner otherwise the shootout would have been an hour or two earlier in in the <laughs> in the courtroom and history would have been very slightly different but um yeah so my my frustration is when history is perfectly a perfectly acceptable and interesting story to tell and someone somewhere along the line doesn't care that bugs me hmm. do you know what that normally bugs me in almost every historical drama I watch but somehow not in Doctor Who and I don't know why I, I should feel very ashamed at um, making an exception on no grounds whatsoever Shall we talk mm-hmm. about like a it. study in terror? Because there's a few things I could tell you about the Whitechapel murders <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an edit, Richard <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll take my special hat off then <laughs> It's funny, yeah. I have a, that's like my similar similar thing with regard to science in Doctor Who. I'm quite happy. Yeah, I'm usually quite happy to let you know to hand wave and just think, oh, it's Doctor Who, and I'll I give it a free pass. But the thing that pushes my buttons is when is when I can see that there's something really good or that just a 
an opportunity to do something that is cool and and accurate you know or just you know or just a little bit of pseudoscience that could explain something away in a better way and and yet the ball is dropped yeah i'm the only person who's who's ventured an opinion as to whether i enjoyed it or not oh good lord (laughs) Mm. (laughs) (laughs) apart from gavin yeah i always i always thoroughly enjoy it and i i I think it's still still think it's pretty neatly constructed it's interesting what you were saying about the the way the humor drains away rather more rapidly than it does in Mm. in the myth makers for instance and not necessarily replaced with anything Mm. You know anything else, but mm. Mm. yeah. No, I I think it's I think it's terrific. And if it, if the Mythmakers didn't exist as for me to compare it to, then mm. you know it might be oh, might be <laughs> no no forget it. I wouldn't call it a histori- I wouldn't call it a historical story. I once listened to a podcast where um, they were trying to list all the historical stories in order, and I completely skipped the gunfighters because people just don't think. It was one I was on. That was I was hoping to arrive at Tim. That did happen, didn't it? It did happen. Yeah, yeah. A few times. And you know, maybe that's uh, maybe that's telling. Maybe yeah. it's because deep down we knew that we should be ashamed of it, ashamed <laughs> of, of labelling it with the H word. Mm. We knew that Gavin, who we hadn't met at that point, would would one day soundly berate us. <laughs> anyway, I also think that that Mr. Werp is very funny. It's one of the silliest uh, running gags. Oh yes, yes. Mr. Werp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I watched it in two halves. I th- and I think I enjoyed the, f- the first half more than the second half. But but yeah, I mean, mm. I, I, I I thought I thought it was th- th- it was a good and entertaining piece. Um, I you know I I'd certainly. I mean, I've, I mean, I've already watched it more than most Doctor Who. <laughs> That's probably about my fourth mm. fourth viewing of it. But I'd be happy to give it a fifth. Mm. Why is that? Why why have you? been subjected to it so many more times than say well many many much better thought of stories that you've apparently never gone back to well it, m- most of the stories i've never gone back to are in the new series which uh, i watched i watched the gunfighters the first time i suppose on uk gold i've watched it with my daughter probably watched it when it i got a dvd and then this would be the fourth time so yeah i mean it, 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 fair enough i, I think i got you also make of it well, she, you know, she didn't. I can't remember her being either particularly overjoyed or disappointed with it. She, she kind of watched them largely in sort of silence and maybe asked a few questions here and there. Um, I, I, I don't. I, 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 I think probably she, she in a she, hostage situation. Yeah, indeed, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think she enjoyed other ones probably a bit more, but you know, hmm. she didn't sort of run out of the room or anything. Mm. I can just I I just enjoy watching it because it's I enjoy watching these ones where, where you feel Hartnell is firing on all cylinders. Mm. My get out is that I watch Doctor Who for Doctor Who, and uh, that's why I I forgive it more whether it's mm. doing science or history or whatever the hell it's doing. I forgive it more because if it's mm. good Doctor Who, and this is good Doctor Who, and the, the it gives the regulars lots to do. Mm. And uh, if anyone thinks it's too silly, I also watched a bit of Karen Cowboy. As yeah, <laughs> for no particular because I was in the mood. Yeah, and <laughs> there, there they call uh, wider Mr. Twerp. Oh right, so, no, you know it could be worse. Mm. It makes it makes the running gag about Mr. Werp seem Chaucerian. It makes, <laughs> you, it, it makes you wonder whether Hartnell nicked that directly because it precedes 
the gunfighters. And Hartnell probably kept an eye on the carry-on films, I dare say. Mm. Mm. Don't know. It's possible. I missed where it came in. I was I was going to say that I think it's quite delightful that because I, I do love anyone who's got the balls to keep a running gag, a silly gag going way past the point where most people would lose confidence in it. But um, I was I was <laughs> thinking it was just a bit of absurdism, Mr. Werp. But is it does he read it on a sign somewhere? W Erp. Oh, I see. I'm just I just wondered if perhaps there was a reason for it that I admit that I hadn't seen. No, I don't think hmm. so. No, it's just something he starts saying yeah. for no particular reason. That's good. I prefer that. <laughs> I would have been disappointed if it turned out that it was just based on phonetics. Yeah, and you're kind of wow. relieved to hear it's not a fluff and it's a deliberate, it's a deliberate <laughs> yeah. joke because it's in that it's in that grey yeah. William Hartnell yeah. <laughs> area of uh, of diction, isn't it? Yeah. But it is deliberate. So, I mean, are we are we getting close to the end of our discussion of the gunfighters? Are there other things that people wanted to say about this? Oh, apparently, kept you know, in in fantasy casting stuff. Apparently, Carol Cleveland was possibly up to play. Oh, all right, Doc Doc Holliday uh, <laughs> to play Kate. Yes, um, yeah. all right. <laughs> well, considered to play Kate, right. which is um, she's quite a Carol Cleveland kind of a character anyway. Yeah, which would be yeah. So, so we can imagine a version with Pat Troughton, yeah, as Johnny Ringo, which yeah. begs the question of what what would they have done six months later when they were, or less when they were casting a Doctor. Yeah, and, and if, if would only... they bother to come up with an entire season-long arc to explain why the new Doctor looked like Johnny Ringo? And if and if only David Graham and Shane Rimmer had been playing their Thunderbirds counterparts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Does Shane Rimmer read the audio book? Possibly. Yep. I know. I. I. It just leaves me wishing that feeling that there should have been a trilogy of Donald Cosman stories. Hmm. I mean, it wouldn't have been a trilogy. I just wanted a third one. But um, you get that in the targets, don't you? Yeah, you do. Yes, yeah. And they're they're all they're all told through the eyes of others. Uh, so it's quite a nice little set that I think. Hmm. What's well, a lovely positive note to end on? Mm. <laughs> Quick, move on before <laughs> before, before Gavin comes yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the, the the second one we're looking at is a town called Mercy, written by Toby Whithouse. So you know one of our one of the writers we've looked at a few times on this podcast, uh, and directed by Saul Metstein or Metstein, who also directed the Crimson Horror. So we've talked about one of his before. Oh, right. uh-huh. there you go. Hmm. Um, Last time you also did Metstein, Metstein, and you've had at least a month <laughs> to work out which it is, yeah. Richard. And I said a name to conjure, yeah, yeah. and then completely forgot tonight that we'd already. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, let, let's let's call the whole thing off, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, so so what do we know about this? It, it, it's filmed in Spain, where where the um, spaghetti westerns. Why, why are they spaghetti westerns if they're in Spain? Shouldn't they be Italian Italian producers, oh, Italian owners? Mm. Right. It, it also received very high appreciation ratings. So 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 much as as Gunfighters mm. was was the least appreciated in the classic series. Apparently, this was the most appreciated story in the of the five that it appeared with in that little mini-series um, in it, 2012. Was it really? How interesting. Ooh, series 7A, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So, uh, anyone want to venture a thought about A Town Called Mercy? I haven't watched it since Transmission. Uh, it's the it's the classic yeah. the classic opening gambit here. Yes, yeah, so I, I did enjoy it. I found some things a bit distracting. I, just thinking about... I'm feeling like, okay... It, pastiches westerns and things like that but it's almost 
is the western setting kind of incidental to the to the story here rather than it doesn't feel terribly integral yeah to it i guess there's a few there's a few bits that touch on it they touch on the idea that okay it's it's a few years it's only a few been a few years since the civil war and i suppose that slightly is mirrored with yeah but it colored jacks is that his his name jacks well jacks yeah with his backstory captain jack Sharon's Jack. <laughs> Sharon's Jack, yes. <laughs> Sharon who? Um, but it sort of feels like there's a kind of... Well, obviously, it is, it is a kind of morality play sort of thing. Yeah. It, it raises some interesting questions, but it feels like... It doesn't feel like the Western setting was necessarily the only one in which they could hmm. they could have addressed that. No. So it, it doesn't feel quite so much of a Western, despite having despite having little nods to it, like the... Um, the Undertaker measuring up, mm. constantly measuring up Matt Smith's shoulders, and um, I think it's more window dressing and occasional the occasional gag, isn't it? Here, mm. rather than yeah, and fundamentally, it's not it's not doing a pastiche in the way that mm. the no. Gunfighters is. It's interesting that you both say that because it was the brief was Rise of West, a Western mm. with yeah. a robot. And, that was the basic yeah. The comfort that the writer finds is just putting in all the window dressing and then writing a different story. But that was I an think, interruption. Yeah, I think funda- we've got two stories here where the writer has been told writer Western, and they both approach it in different ways. Neither of them thought, oh goody, I've been waiting all my, all my career to do this. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they both went you know, went about the, the task in different ways. Cotton fell back on what he knew, already knew about Westerns mm. and possibly took the lazy approach of just pastiching one particular story but doing it in his style whereas here it's so it's a a triumph of style over substance the gunfighters whereas here i would say toby Whithouse has chosen to write a a story he's interested in yeah Hmm. you've gone down the science fiction route the morality you know the moral dilemma route and i guess he started thinking about (laughs) the tropes the cliches, the iconography of the Western, and he's you know he's, he's made a short list on a bit of paper, and uh, before he's you know got to the end of the page, that's enough to fire off a particular story in his head, and then from that point on, he's concentrating on this story he's telling, which which is why, as you say, it's not really tied, anchored in mm. in that world. Mm. It's he does it well enough that you don't feel that it's gratuitous, mm. or yes, yeah. know, or superfluous. This the setting. Mm. This is a nice balance of the two. But it does fundamentally. I was trying to get into a bigger discussion of the way in which um, historicals differ in new and old who. Have we had that before? Well, I mean, we had two of them well, of course, last time, but I don't know that we had. Yeah, I'm, I'm st- I still haven't formed a firm conclusion. But of course, we don't have the pure historicals now that we had back then. But but we've I, I don't know maybe we've also touched on the fact that is there any such thing as a pure historical? It's this label yeah. that we brought up to believe it just meant there was no science in it. Mm. But it's a story where the history is all completely wrong and it might as well be set in, a, in an alternative universe. Is that really a pure historical any more mm. than if, if it had turned out that the Clantons were a load of dra- yeah. Yeah, <laughs> dravins in disguise? It, it, it feels very much to me like a companion piece to the God Complex. You know, you've, you've got this kind of creature that's out there waiting. Now, of course, in the God Complex, it's looking for devotion. And mm. in, the, in, in this one, it's more about coming back for vengeance. But you've got that. I I don't think it's quite as it's quite as good a story as the God Complex. But it just seemed to me that that it had that kind of similar sense of the lurking presence out there. 
That's very nice. Hmm. Uh, which came first, the Gold Complex? Yes, it did. Gold, gold Complex Season hmm. 6. Uh, yes. seri- uh, I think he's, series six. he's definitely very good at blending those different requirements. A good science fiction idea, hmm. a strong dramatic theme, hmm. and the, the uh, superficial layer, that, which is probably anything left from the brief, you know. Hmm. Whether it be have a monitor or set it in a hotel. Perhaps there wasn't a brief on the Goblet <laughs> Complex, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you get, always get the feeling that the, the one-line brief the slutty one-liner that, mm. that Moffat gives to all his writers yeah. is much less evident. It's never the f- first and foremost in the Toby Whithouse story. It's always mm. just hanging in there, fighting with whatever he, he actually ended up being most interested mm. about. It's quite a religious story yeah. in, the, in, in the broadest yeah. in the broadest sense of being religious in, in that it, it addresses questions and things that that are you know, that are usually regarded as the province of religion or faith or spirituality isn't it i think all this these questions about mercy and forgiveness and yeah and culpability and it works pretty well i mean there's a there's a couple of points where it's um you know i, fe- I felt like it's it's maybe put a, a little bit too much on the nose in the dialogue mm-hmm. i think there's i think there's one bit where um adrian Scar- scarborough who's generally you know generally fantastic but yeah I think there's one bit where he more or less spells out the Doctor's dilemma to him. Yeah. And I slightly winced. It's interesting what you, because you've got Isaac, the, the Marshal, and he's prepared mm. to forgive Jex, but then mm. he hasn't actually suffered the consequences. So to some extent, it's, it's a lot easier for him to say, well, can we not just forgive this guy? He's, a, you know, he's done really great mm. stuff here. Whereas the, I guess the gunslinger, who is the guy who has suffered the consequences, it's, it's a much harder dilemma for him to turn around and say, uh, "Oh, it's all okay then. Mm. You've turned over a new leaf." To my cynical eyes, I mean that the character, uh, what's he called again? <laughs> the uh, the the original Marshal. Isaac. 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 Mm. He seems too good to be true. I mean, he's he's very big on forgiveness, and he's got a lot of faith as well, as you say. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it is true. But um, I wasn't looking at it from a religious angle. Mm. I was just thinking, this guy's too good to be true. That seems a bit contrived. He's acting in the way that the plot needs him to, mm. so that all mm. the pieces can be in their position at the end and, and tell a very neat, an admittedly very neat conclusion, a very satisfying conclusion. But I, must, I did think that his accidental self-sacrifice was a, seemed a bit too um, contrived for me. But mm. if I actually consider what sort of man he was supposed to be... <laughs> Which I didn't, and that's my failing. I I wouldn't have had anyone near as much of a problem with that. Hmm. Well, you've made me think, Richard. <laughs> I don't like it. Don't do it again. <laughs> the moral dilemma stories are never my favourite type of Doctor Who because, as you know, they make me think, and I don't like that. It's uncomfortable. No, it's that's not the reason. The reason they're not my favourites is because they're very difficult to do well, and this is done very well. Hmm. This is done as well as they ever are in 45 minutes. But I've just seen too many bad ones, which raise much bigger issues than, than you can do in the length or than the writer is capable of doing mm. or, than, or possibly even than Doctor Who as a format is capable of doing. I just remember early on, um, way back in the first series, forming that opinion. Dalek deals very well with the moral dilemma for the Doctor, but then Russell repeats that same idea in Boomtown mm. and it never quite worked for me because... Well, I mean, I won't go into all the reasons there because we're not discussing that one, and we probably will one day. But I just seemed partly that the ideas were too big for that episode, and partly mm. 
it's 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 a problem when you take a moral dilemma that would that makes sense on a human level mm. and put it in a science fiction context mm. where the doctor has choices that we don't but the yeah. dilemma he's facing is something that the, the human writers thought up that, and that we will identify with but you just think well this is all very true it's, it's true for us on planet earth but it wouldn't necessarily be the truth of the doctor he could he can get out of this the same mm. in the same way that that the the vague abilities of this future science can often scupper stories that hmm. are based on the on, on human yeah. science you put your finger on something there that Stories they have to be the right size to mm. to fit yeah you know, to to do that sort of thing and but the, and this feels like it is the right the right size yeah. the right size for the format in that you're dealing with one you know you are dealing with essentially two two characters you know two characters it's not like you know they're not it's a character study isn't it and, really? it, and it's an it's a kind of and it's an aftermath story you're not pitching everything into the middle of a into the middle of the war and expecting us to process all of that stuff. And a moral dilemma in 45 minutes. I'll happily admit that I'm still unsure whether the reasons I'm not 100% sold on it, as much as I enjoyed it as a piece of Doctor Who, are because I missed something. But um, being presented with this guest character, what's his name? Kaiser Soze. Carla Jacks? Carla Jacks. They're all Carla Yeah. Right. So, Toby has decided to tell a story about a man the Doctor meets who... Sort of breaks his normal, his calm, his reserve, his his non his his antipathy to retribution. Hmm. Brings out the worst in him. We haven't really seen him like this since. Well, the Daleks tend to bring it out of him, but since possibly you know the episode Dalek. Hmm. And I think what's so bad about this man hmm. that brings that side of the Doctor out? Isn't this too big an idea to be told through these characters? And that that had me bothered. Then I thought for a minute the story go, was going down the path that the reason the doctor reacted so harshly was not because Carla Jacks was so was the most evil foe he'd come up against in decades mm. but because he reminded him of himself because yes he had, yeah because he made the same decisions mm. to end a war and you know a uh, utilitarian decision mm. but then that sort of was left unsaid. So now I'm not sure if that was in my head, or if that was, or if that was just, or if Toby was being subtle and not mm. spelling it out. So what do you think? Did I miss? What have I missed? No, I, I made it? a. I thought the same thing and made a note. Sorry, we seem to be monopolising this slightly, but um, I kind of made a made a note, and I was think I made a thinking mistake that I was, I was thinking, oh, this is a this is foreshadowing the day of the Doctor, huh. uh, and then 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 I thought, well, hang on. Is it really foreshadowing the day of the Because I forgot that it's okay season. Yeah, you know, the all of the stuff comes after season seven B. So, so it's about a year away at this at this point. It's not like coming up in the next couple of episodes. It feels like it's foreshadowing it if you've already seen it. Hmm. But <laughs> for the for the Moffat and Toby to have got together and written this story with that in mind, hmm. seems a bit ambitious with that long gap. Hmm. Yes. But of course, yeah. it, while while the audience at the time would not have seen Day of the Doctor, they would have seen. Dalek and Last of mm. the Time Lords and the End of Time and all the other stories mm. that go that that make it perfectly clear mm. that the Doctor is still suffering, not in any danger of getting over. Yeah, I didn't I didn't feel it was too big a reach that this guy pushed the Doctor's buttons. Mm. So it was mm. just subtle writing, that. Mm. No, but it's spelled out as well, isn't it? That, that we're saying the question of whether he's overreacting is addressed by Amy Pond. Mm. 
yeah. this is what happens when you travel by yourself, which uh, mm. was a terrific moment for me. Right, yeah. Mm. And in brackets, the only thing that either of the Pons had to do in the entire <laughs> episode. So I thought, mm. it was, I thought it was fine. I, I quite liked the tip from Matt Smith being astonishingly good at physical comedy. You know, that I, I'm a sucker for that business with the cocktail stick and... Uh, mm. <laughs> the, the attitude he shows when he's readmitted into town and you know he's he like squares up to to all the residents and you see that comedy side very quickly going flipping to him seeing innocent beings being tortured and killed and it makes him angry and i'm mm. i'm i'm okay with that and i like all the moral dilemma stuff i too felt it not a deliberate foreshadowing but moffat might have nicked that sort of dilemma for the day of the doctor Mm. Don't know. Yeah, yep, that's mm. more likely, isn't it? That it brought it back to his mind. Yeah. I, I, what I didn't like was what I felt was a cop-out ending. I didn't like yeah. the suicide. I thought that was yeah. incredibly convenient for all concerned. Mm. Uh, and I didn't I, feel it was very true to the Sharaz Jack Yeah, w- particularly given that, it, uh, what, ten minutes earlier he'd said how, how worried he was about facing death with, yeah. with, with the weight of all those souls. Mm. Yes, yeah, and yeah, absolutely. And I just felt it wasn't quite a right ending. It was just a convenient way of mm. um, of hitting a, a, a an end button mm. on on the story. But at least you got um, I... you know check off self destruct mechanism. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think that does link into what I was trying to say about you know these stories that raise massive mm. moral dilemmas that possibly yeah. can't be answered. Um, it's not so much that the story ran out of time to answer it, but that mm. it's, a, it's a connected point. It's a, it's a dilemma that if you can't, if the doctor is not going to be able to answer this question, don't raise it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's, and I a, don't, that's a good point. Yeah, I was thinking, oh, I don't like this trope. The, the doctor encouraging the bad guy to commit suicide to avoid him having to make a decision mm. on how to deal with. But I couldn't actually think of any examples. I feel like it is something that I've seen elsewhere. I couldn't think of examples. Can you think of any? The suicide absolving the doctor of, uh, of responsibility. Of having to make a decision. Hmm. Literally, literally hmm. that, not metaphorically. But yeah, I can't off the top of my head. But I agree. I feel like it's something uh, well, I've seen. We'll edit some. We'll edit some. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, yeah, one does come back to yeah. When you, you mentioned Boomtown before, and now that I mean that does it and. Yeah, we're not here to discuss Boomtown, but to my mind, okay, that that does it in in the most that gets that gets yeah. out of it in the most balls, ballsy way you possibly can with a literal Deus Ex Machina, and it is yeah. the I think it's a masterpiece, but it's something you can absolutely only do once, and it is the writer, you know, and that is the equivalent of the writer throwing their hands up and saying, you know, this is the entire point that they, you know, it kind of takes the Deus Ex Machina to to solve this. I think. I think what I'm trying to say is, I realise why I confuse myself, I've many times seen a character sacrifice himself to mm. get to save the Doctor from from a sticky situation or a decision. Mm. And this is just, the, you know, that pushed um, turn up to 11, isn't it? Mm. In, in terms of, 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 of the Western side of things, you know, one, one could almost call it Doctor Who, the Three Shanes. Because you know you, you've you've got the the Western Shane about the you know the gunslinger who comes in to kind of save the day and and sort of tackle the the, the local nasties, 
and to some extent you've got Jex who's the who, who's who's come in and sort of helped them with with the electricity and he's cured the the outbreak of cholera so mm-hmm. uh, in the same way that Shane sort of comes and chops down the tree I mean he doesn't want to be the gunslinger he just happens to have been that but he comes in and helps practically around the farm and then in the end he's kind of pushed into in, into helping them with to, to to fight off the 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 baddies and then you've got Matt Smith is the second Shane because he's sort of coming in and mediating I suppose in the situation between Jex and the gunslinger and then at the end when they're all leaving then the gunslinger stays around and he's he's the, he's Shane as well because he's, he's around to kind of deal with any nasties who come along afterwards so hmm. I, I mean to, to, to my mind that that anyway that was the closest that I could think of that this sort of fitted into a into a western story that I'd come across Hmm. Well, I, I shy away from using such words, but I just can't think of any other one because I'm just thinking about avoiding, uh, avoiding the word. But it's very, very tropey having a, you know, slightly oddball character come into town who ends up taking up a sheriff's badge and saving the day. It's just what westerns are. Every right. single western that's mm-hmm. ever been made is someone, some quirky character coming in and saving the day. Where where this one goes very different is it ends up trying to mash the boys from Brazil or, you know, Joseph Mengele mm. and Nazi war right. crimes <laughs> yeah, and all yeah. of that sort yeah. of stuff. I don't think that's a marriage that's been done no. before. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, uh, sorry to go back to it, but it, 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 it sets up the dilemma quite nicely and just ends it quite dissatisfactorily. And the suicide, no one's bothered by it. People are relieved by it. The writer's relieved by it. The doctor's <laughs> relieved by it. Mm. <laughs> and then... It's just a bit of a letdown if you overthink it. There are other, mm. there are a few bits that I pick holes in as well. It's a complete and utter nonsense that the the gunslinger has to stay outside town because he's frightened of hurting yeah. innocents in town. This is a town roughly the size of Canterbury, by the look of it. <laughs> and the thought that they've got eighty-one residents—that's fine. They've had cholera, mm. but is this guy so incompetent that he can't? get the right guy he can't pick him out he can't fling him out that didn't work but it didn't really matter it was just a, a bit of storytelling oh I, I was about to go on a Moffat rant but should I do that now <laughs> I really don't like the thing with uh, a, a thing with the Moffat era that he does and does time and time again is have a contrived bit of narrator at the start or at the end or a mm. contrived bit of mythos at the start and at the end. And I really dislike it. I really dislike that. But that was the only Moffatty thing I disliked in it because mm. my memory of the time was feeling mightily relieved with Series 7A in that Series 6 and 5 were really bogged down in arc yeah. and mm. timey-wimey stuff and series 7a dinosaurs on a spaceship oh it was asylum of the daleks at first the yeah. first one was that mm, right yeah. Yeah. Asylum was first, yeah they're all standalone stories so it felt very mm. very refreshing to me being able to sit down for 45 minutes and watch start to end a story and for that reason i enjoyed it at the time mm. and i enjoyed it not for that reason because i'd forgotten the pain of trying to figure out what the hell was going on but i just enjoyed it as a a, a really well-made, gorgeous-looking standalone story, um, mm. and that's my sort of memory of it, and, and and what carried forward 
yesterday when I watched it. Mm. It's really competently made, entertaining. Love all the Western stuff. Love it. If you're going to do a Western, have him riding a horse. Yeah. Have him wearing mm. a Stetson. Yeah. Have him have a lynch mob. Have uh, a gunfight. It's... I just think it does everything it's supposed to do and is a good example of, of what Doctor Who should be. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you do actually get... You get horses in both stories. I mean, I I, I was... <laughs> mm. I, I was kind of surprised to see horses in the gunfighters. It, 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 I mean, I know it's Ealing, so it's just about mm. doable, but it, it, I, I thought I, that they were... I was surprised they were, they were able to do that somehow. I mean, I know it's mm. no elephant, but it's still, it's still yeah, quite impressive. You don't have to take <laughs> up in the lift, do you, to the fourth floor? <laughs> <laughs> so just remind me after after the gunslinger what was next uh, sorry after uh, a town call power of power three power three ah uh, right okay and then and angels angels take Manhattan and then the angels so Ooh, it's, it's, yeah. it's on a downward spiral mm. after this I'm afraid yeah mm. and it, again it's so long since I've watched it but that, that thing with Amy calling out the doctor about this is what happens if you yeah. travel alone and it, at the end of the previous episode we've just had that which was dinosaurs on a spaceship, and isn't it, isn't that quite controversial yes. for the way the Doctor finishes off? Indeed, effectively executes Solomon. Is hmm. it Solomon David Bradley's yes. well, character? I can't called. I can't remember the details, but it's I, I remember at the time. But is this resolved then? If if this is if this is a blooded. thread, that's, hmm. yes, it was. Is this, if this is a thread, that's deliberate. Does it go anywhere? Because uh, the first time we had this at the end of Tenants era, it was going somewhere. Hmm. We thought that all oh, the doctors getting a bit carried away, and then that turned out to be the point of the story. But I can't remember an equivalent here. Is it just individual writers putting those notes in because that's what they want? It doesn't feel like it comes uh, back in Seven B at all. I'm just thinking. I mean, cause it also then... doesn't didn't feel to me, and I did check myself when I was enjoying the moment. It doesn't feel like the Lonely God stuff. Of the tenant era, mm. have we had it made explicit that this is why the Doctor needs people to travel with? When is that first raised in the new series? Mm. That is it, the Lonely God. Is that why? Do we have that same point made that you need? To, this is why you have uh, 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 human companions to keep you human. Is well, Donna, way Donna, back Donna, then? I'm and, sure Donna hmm. says it very blatantly. I can't can't quite think when. First of Pompeii, actually. Well, it could be, couldn't it? It's I not a, quite. I had a feeling she brings it up there. Even I can remember that because it was only a month ago. <laughs> yes, exactly. but we, I don't think it's quite that explicit. So maybe it comes back later. But I'm pretty sure it's the kind of thing she'd call. You know, I, I have Before a recollection of her calling him out on it. Hmm. Why is there so little Amy and Rory? It's not like an Amy and Rory story <laughs> light story deliberately, is it? Because or is it just slightly incompetent writing? Because they they take them on locations. It's not like they're trying to minimise their use of the actors they were film. I I don't know about lights but they did film this and Asylum they were doing a location work for Asylum of the Daleks at the same time weren't they didn't they they did both of them in Spain so I'm one would imagine it. it's because it's because Clint Eastwood ride, rides into town by himself he doesn't ride into town with a married mm. couple so the mm. format doesn't fit <laughs> <laughs> the format doesn't fit the pastiche or right. that they're trying to tell, so does it? So they've they're struggling to give them things to do. So if mm. it hadn't been this mini series, if it had been the same structure as the other Matt Smith series, this would have been an episode where James Corden turns up instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Mm. You can see him trying to give Amy stuff to do because they do that contrived bit of kidnapping in the in the sheriff's office, don't they? When Carla Jacks loses his temper or feels threatened or whatnot, but mm. it just feels very disposable that bit. The the, mm. the 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 money here is all about the Doctor and how he deals with the the God fearing local peasants and how he feels deals with the threat and and so mm. on. So they just don't fit in the type of story that they're trying to tell. I don't know whether that's incompetent or just a bad fit. Mm. I don't know. It's difficult because if you had longer a bit longer to play with then you could probably come up with a come up with a couple of subplots for Yeah. Sort and of a better decent ending. subplots for them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I think the arc in terms of the ending, I'll, maybe I'll try play devil's advocate and defend it. I think the arc of Carla Jax's character does work, but it's too fast. It's too sped up. Again, if it had maybe mm. ever been twice as long, it would have made sense. All the beats are there. Mm. The fact that he mentions, I mean, as you say, it, because of the pace at which this is told, the fact that he's said just how terrified he is of the afterlife, but then does away with himself anyway, mm. seems might seem a bit rushed when there's only 10 minutes between those two, but it is actually set up for just what a big decision this is. Yeah. And quite how. Mm. And how noble it is by his standards. So, if you'd spread all that out a bit more, mm. yeah. So, are we to mm. think that that Jex, the, the, the sort of war that he's escaping from, just happens to be eighteen sixty eight in some other part of the galaxy? <laughs> You've made me think of Red Dwarf again. I was trying not to mention Red Dwarf. Well, no, it remind, is... reminded me of my favorite yeah. my favorite Red Dwarf gag, where they go, they finally get a, a time machine, but it doesn't move them in space, <laughs> and they end up. <laughs> Back in the, the heady uh, <laughs> Renaissance atmosphere yes. of 14th century <laughs> deep space. <laughs> While I'm on the subject, I remember I remember being worried mm. about this story because it looked from the trailers to be all the things I didn't like about Red Dwarf. The, mm. the gunslinger looks like those awful yeah. Termin- knockoff Terminators they have all the time, Red Dwarf, whatever they're called. Yeah. And it also reminded me of my single least favorite episode, which is the award-winning Gunsling- Gunslinger's the, the Apocalypse. Apocalypse yeah. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah, that is the elephant in the room, and unfortunately, mm. it can't help but detract from it for for me. Just the depiction of the gunslinger and the performance, and I'm sure the actor's doing doing his damnedest in the costume, but with the voice treatments and everything like that. For me, it's just unfortunately I can't help but look at it and and think Red Dwarf. <laughs> I think that's your two problem, not uh, <laughs> not yeah, Toby Whitehouse's yeah, well, or. Or mm. Mr. Metstein, to be honest, I thought he, I thought I thought he looked astonishingly good. I wasn't jaded by Red Dwarf. I have seen mm. them, but Gav kept whining on saying it's derivative, and I kept going, "That's what I like about it." <laughs> if you if you're gonna do a western, have them do everything that happens in a western, and that's what they do. Yeah. And you can just sit back it's, and enjoy it, let it wash over you, and it happens. It happens once every fifty years that I'm allowed to see a western. Mm. Mm. But it's both to me. It's both derivative and not derivative. It's not if it was de- if it was passage one or two very specific mm. westerns very strongly, then it would be a completely different beast. Mm. It's as I well, you know, I can't really add anything to what we already said. I I just think it's it's ticking off quite a number of little gags here and there, but they're they're not the meat of it. The meat of it is a is a I think said a completely original story. I'm not going to claim that for it, but it's th- this combination of a lot of elements from picked quite widely mm. is unique, 
and I think that's what well it's not what saves it because I would have been perfectly happy as we spent the first two hours saying with something that was just a pastiche but then I think as I started to say and perhaps I perhaps I was wise not to go on with it earlier it's, a, it's also a difference between the way old and new who do the historicals it's like the difference between the smugglers and um, what was it called Pirates of the Caribbean what was the one we had <laughs> in new who again you know, they 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 were unashamed in in pastiching things faithfully, i.e., faithfully, faithlessly mm. in the old days. Whereas now, people just can't do it. They're too they're too uptight, too ashamed of pastiching proper westerns for more than a few seconds at a time, or or proper pirate films. So we get people jumping through hoops to create a science fiction scenario that just pays lip service <coughs> to um, cliches and tropes. Mm. which I'm sure a significant portion of the audience would prefer to see. Yeah. But regardless of whether it's a good or a bad thing, I do think that's the fundamental difference between the two. Yeah, I mean, it does, it, it does feel like, like you, you could say, that you know, what we've said so far, I mean, all I'm doing now is repeating what everyone else has already said, but, but the, the, <laughs> the, the Gunfighters is a, a specific Western film with Doctor Who in it, whereas this is all the same things... But rearranged in a different way to form an entirely new film that has Doctor Who in it. Yeah, that's also mm. a western. Yeah, I'm pastiching all the same tropes, but not necessarily in the <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I, I should have stopped saying that, but I've committed to it. So I'm just going on. I, you can answer. I get the sense because I think my enjoyment of Moffat Who is slightly different to others, but I get the sense, and indeed my. Uh, I get the sense from on the forums and having when this story ever comes up and having done my thorough research on Wikipedia earlier. I mean, Patrick Mulkern right. called this called this languorous. Oh. I didn't get that. I did watch this immediately after finishing uh, episode four of the Gunfighters, mm. so I had to keep pausing it to check that I hadn't missed anything key because yeah. the dialogue is sparse. But mm. at the time, did 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 you folks feel it was languorous or uh, like it slammed the brakes on it? It was too slow or no? no? It seemed well no, paced to me. For me. Mm. Interesting, but I, I have picked up that sense over the years as well that it, it's an unwelcome intrusion into the wibbly wobbly, timey wimey <laughs> arc yeah. that is Moffat Who, and that the standalone stories aren't always so welcome but I, I felt completely opposite hmm interesting but uh, westerns are lang uh, well not languorous but I mean you can't tell it a Moffat pace can you elegiacal then, then you yes. completely bent it out of shape mm. yeah I mean it's it's high noon isn't it I mean that, 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 that I suppose that's the one breathe. thing mm. that you could say mm. it, it's a it, it's a take off but that only lasts for about five minutes well yeah mm. quite yeah it's just another ticky box. Yeah, I've got another nitpick. Go on then. It is a nitpick. This the, this race, the Jacks, the, the mm. Jacks, the cars, cars. The Doctor says at one point they can construct armor out of moss and tinfoil or something, doesn't oh, he? Oh, he does, doesn't he? Mm. Yeah. So why nice on line, earth but is not born out? <laughs> yeah. Why on earth is the best lighting rig this genius can concoct is this flickery unstable? Thomas Edison well, light bulb job. To be honest, they're, they're cyborgs and nothing to write home about. <laughs> <that one. laughs> 
<laughs> they make them on their Cybermen. <laughs> Look. Yeah. Like, yeah. It looks like a, a Borg that's gone through a mincer. <laughs> I thought the physical realisation of that character, though, was brilliant. Did, did, did you not? <laughs> it was good enough. Good enough. But um, it, Blimey. it looked like it looked like a hodgepodge of every other low-budget cyborg I've ever seen in any other mm. science fiction. Why, why are they allowed to do genre western, but not allowed to do genre cyborg? <laughs> <laughs> Did Patrick Malkern call it filler by any chance? Is he, is he <laughs> going about how Stammer's walkers on Walker on us? <laughs> it made me think, and I like that. Hmm. And I, I'm not even going to criticise it for for making me think of things that I thoughts that I couldn't fully articulate, and thus had to make an ass of myself in public <laughs> <laughs> to get to the to get the bottom of what what I actually meant. Hmm. So well done, Toby Woodhouse. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it, it's nice. It, I, I guess the issue we've got is it's the same as with last month with with uh, Romus and the fires of Pompeii. It's hard to know that where where things repeat in this modern one it's hard to know if that's deliberate as a sort of homage to the original or mm. whether it just it's just coincidental but you've got you've got the person hiding in jail to sort of you know as, as a protection that's a repeated theme you've got you know well, well we, we, we you know we, we talked about horses and lynch mobs and mm. so on but i suppose that's just inevitable when it comes when it comes to a western yeah we, we, we've we've got quite a quite a lot of things that are looking relatively similar in that regard Key one in both both cases, you have the doctor turning up and being mistaken for another doctor. Yes, yes, yes. that's, that's, that's yeah. very good. Yeah, instigating oh, to good. instigate the plot. Yeah, and he, yeah, and he be and he's pointed to a um, position of authority yes, yes, temporarily both, in both mm. of them. Yeah, as has been pointed out, <laughs> that's, that's just that's the, part for the yeah. course. Mm. Uh, and we've got this this idea that in the end, the law or or justice isn't enough, and sometimes you know, and vigilanteism is going to need be needed, you know, because in the end, the the gunslinger isn't act, you know, is is acting as a vigilante rather than, rather than through the the proper law. Hmm. Regardless of the mechanics of the ending, Tim, I did. I did, did you find it oddly moving seeing the gunslinger stood there? Uh, the, in fact, that narration that we all hate so much. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, maybe it was a bit on the nose, a bit corny, but the eye, the way it introduced the motif of the gunslinger standing on his silent vigil forevermore in, for generations to come, I thought was quite nice. I thought it, it earned that level of schmaltz. Is he still there now? Uh, well, yeah, that's the I point, checked. isn't it? The, the narrator was the granddaughter of the little yeah. girl who mm. observed events. Yeah, I was just going to say, I thought that was actually a nice, slight rug pull moment at the end when you. Thought, oh, hang on, she's the granddaughter of that girl. So, so that narration mm. is coming from several generations down the line. Not, yeah, it's not just her telling the story when she's grown yeah. up, kind of thing. So, so I know I quite like that. As an that idea. could always be my favourite bit. The length of the vigil. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm, but you, oh. <laughs> I think I'd rather have the doctor telling that bit. Oh, I'd rather have. Oh no, that's that's fair. I enough. think I'd it's rather just have the idea them in the TARDIS and um, Amy discovers it somehow that he's still around or or whatever. But I like the idea it made the whole thing mythic which mm. brings us back to it doesn't really 
Yeah. But it brings us back to the idea of the Western as the modern myth. Hmm. Or does it? <laughs> yeah, Grant and Naylor could have been on holiday in Arizona and seen this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and then the whole of Red Dwarf could be brought into the canon. Mm. And then fight out of it. Well well the whole of the of the production of Red Dwarf could be brought into the canon anyway. Mm. I've got one more thing to say. <laughs> Go on then. You love Adrian Scarborough. I do like Adrian not, not, Scarborough. He always does Adrian Scarborough not. very well. Um, <laughs> he's very, very good. Yeah. Uh, no, the only. Yeah, Garrick Hagen. Oh, yes. Ah, yeah. Which one was he? Undertaker. I mean, oh, of course. Oh, was he? Yeah. Ah, they gave him a funny. Yeah. Mm. I wouldn't necessarily have given the actor who played Kai mm. in The Mutants, or indeed Big Starklighter, <laughs> a funny bit. <laughs> but. I'm delighted to know, belatedly, that he's more versatile than I've given him credit for. Excellent. <laughs> I saw him in the credits and yeah, yeah. couldn't be bothered to go and check. Well, he's had, he's had 30 years to learn how to act since all that stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he's very good. Yeah, we, we finally got our measure of him. Mm. <laughs> oh, <dear>. mm. <laughs> oh, you've got to end on that note, mm. because... We can neither follow it nor top it, <laughs> nor really, not really bear nor it. Nor tolerate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, that's very good. Should we end on another rousing chorus of the Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon? <laughs> oh. uh, probably not. No. <laughs> well, look. Uh, in my usual shambling style, thanks for for joining me and indeed, you know, our listener, you know, for, for this <laughs> extravaganza. <laughs> Uh, of, gone of, Terry of, Wogan. Of, 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 of Western frivolity, and and I guess next time we come back, it probably won't be with a Hartnell historical, having done uh, two on yeah, the trot. Yeah, so suddenly realise we've done two in a row. Yeah, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's. It, it, I feel like I've already presaged the one remaining uh, pairing, obvious pairing we can do, haven't I? What of, of Hartnell historical? Sorry, mm-hmm. hang on. Have we done Smugglers and Black Pearl? Yeah. No, because Smugglers doesn't exist no. and we so far tend to uh, leave the missing episodes to uh, to some other, ne- some other bunch of ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> Have we not done any? <laughs> I hadn't noticed. Well, we've done Macro, but that's... Yes. Um, right. But oh, well, we've got to wait till they animate it. Can yes, I just yeah. say how nice it is to talk about a black and white Doctor Who that does exist? <laughs> and <you get> to <laughs> watch. Mm. <laughs> I'm well, yes. being on both these bloody podcasts. I get terribly confused. Mm. <laughs> never, also, also, I'm darting backwards and forwards. Mm. So when I'm thinking about the development of Hartnell compan- characterization, I can never work out where I am. Mm. <laughs> I must, That's my excuse. Yeah, listeners. I must say, watching yeah, and one one closing thought on with regard to like watching the gunfighters and and these cotton, you know, the comedic Hartnells in general does make me yearn for them to. Yeah, yearn for the smugglers to be recovered because it would be you, you imagine that would probably be Hartnell's last hurrah to some extent of, of mm. actually seeing him enjoying the you know, enjoying the part and reveling in it a bit I think it would be a lovely one to have back I think we should plug uh, <laughs> while we're derailing Richard's goodbyes we should <laughs> Sorry, plug yes. the missing episode pod- Tim's missing episode podcast <laughs> Rateathon on Twitter, <laughs> where some interesting results have been gleaned from the general public as to which stories they'd most like to see see mm. back. I've been quite pleased with their taste in some quarters. Mm. So um, the Smugglers hasn't been placed yet, has it? 
Uh, it hasn't. It's had a hell of a fight no. today with uh, the wheel in space because of some Burke keeps trumpeting <laughs> about it to his 10,000 followers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gavin. But yeah, no, it's, it, it's quite interesting now because we're in the, the middle <laughs> ground. <laughs> but yeah. It's, it's, it's the longest pole in the history of pole, so I mean, I, I'm deeply impressed that every day you, oh. you, you, you come back with, a, with another um, set. I want them to end. I, I have no idea how but, it works, but I have faith that he does, which is all. There are some lovely m- m- matchups every now and then, though. Uh, I mean, it does, does feel like people seem to like stories that have got more episodes in them for some, uh, uh, you know, slightly arbitrary reason. Yeah, and they're not even paying for it, and they want their value for money. <laughs> <laughs> Bye then. <laughs> <laughs> do we know what's next, Richard? We do, don't I we? I think we're doing we're we're, do, we're doing Mordrin Undead and the Family of Blood um, Human Nature thing. I mean, Brilliant. except it's the other way around. But yeah. Oh. Right, I might. Uh... Why? Why what? <laughs> What's the link? I can't imagine. I'm going to go and, w- and watch If by Lindsay Anderson. <laughs> 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 That's my research. And goodbye, Mr. Chips. <laughs> mm. School! <laughs> <laughs> As any fool you've got, know. Um, you've got to edit in the music uh, that before, before he says that and then leave another 10 second gap <laughs> and then turn Tim's exclamation <laughs> up to. <laughs> I didn't get it until Goodbye Mr Chips got mentioned Um, (laughs) Have you finished saying goodbye? Well it's been been a pleasure having you all on especially the mystery voice Who was that? Must man Fill up your glasses. <laughs> oh, no, it's early. That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, okay, just... So if I go through it once. Oh. Fill up your glasses and join in the song. The four of us are ready and it might take quite long. So come podcast listeners and take up our tune. Let's discuss a town called Mercy and the last chance saloon. Sorry yeah. about that. Everyone else can record theirs now. <laughs> and you can layer it. Yeah, yeah.